I was 12 years old in 1968 when my family climbed into a two-tone impala. As I remember it, it was white on the bottom and it was aqua-colored on the roof. And my father had built a homemade car top carrier which was latched to the top of the car and painted to match that aqua roof. We were a spectacle to be seen as we climbed into that car and went on a camping trip all the way to California and back. Mother and Dad had carefully mapped the trip to include, of course, the national parks and then also a little time, a day in Disney World, actually Disneyland it was on that West Coast. We uh, had just a day to go across the border into Juarez, Mexico. I remember buying an enormous sombrero. And I can imagine that my parents were thinking, how are we going to get that home when we've only just begun the journey? We went to Houston and saw the Astrodome, which was new at that time. I can remember moving into the expanse of that huge building and being given a tour and led out onto the field to discover what astroturf was. What a marvel to see through the eyes of a 12-year-old. I remember that our first stop on that journey was to go to New Orleans. It was a long trip. We actually broke it into a couple of days to get to New Orleans. But when we arrived in Louisiana, there are three things that still stay with me about that area. One is that we went across a long, long, long bridge before getting to New Orleans. Another thing that I remember very distinctly is that in our tour of the city, we walked past cemeteries where the graves were above ground. They housed in crypts the bodies of those that had passed over not just decades but centuries. They were held there and some of those were in such poor condition that they were breaking apart and I can remember being fascinated and wanting to peek in there and see if I could see anything that would be of significance. As we walked through the city, I remember my father suggesting and having to persuade my mother that this was the right thing to do, that we walk uh, the family down Bourbon Street and it was just a couple of blocks over dead said to mother from where we were and she said I'm not sure that we need to go there and he said it will be a good experience for them pointing at the three children us my brother and my sister and myself and so we went over to Bourbon Street 
I didn't know what Bourbon Street was. I had no concept of what Bourbon Street might be. All I knew was that my mother had some reservations about us being there. I do remember having a lot of energy, and I was not satisfied with the slow pace of the family as we moved down the street and would race ahead and race behind to catch up then later with the family. And as I was racing down the sidewalk, I went past one establishment and the door was wide open. And so immediately I jumped inside the doorway. I thought, if it's open, I want to see what's in there. And I was immediately met with an individual who spoke to me. She had the longest eyelashes I've ever seen. And she had on the tightest dress I've ever seen. And there is no telling what was going on in that room. But she said to me, she said, shoo away, boy, shoo away, boy. You're not old enough for any of this stuff. And I wasn't nor am I even yet old enough for any of that stuff. (laughs) The reason I share this story with you is to tell you that Caesarea Philippi was that kind of place. Caesarea Philippi was raucous and unbridled. It was one of three grand cities that Herod the Great had built in honor of his Caesar back in Rome. It was a building of relationship more than it was a building of metropolises. But particularly in the case of Caesarea Philippi, which was built at the foot of Mount Hermon, that snow-capped ridge in northern Israel, just 60 miles above where the Sea of Galilee is located. It was this majestic setting. The Greek god Pan was the focus of the city. You remember who he was, this fabled god that was half human and half goat, was said to abide just near that location, living in the underworld, no doubt, and then making his appearance at certain moments when there were festivities or where there were sacrifices sufficient enough in order to prompt him to come into the light. There at the location of Caesarea Philippi was a cave that was deep into the hillside of this massive rock formation, 100 feet tall and 500 feet in width. And as you entered into the cave, you realized immediately that it did not go very deep into that structure, but that it fell off in a precipitous way 
to a depth that no one could see. There was this hole in the ground that obviously had been put there by the force of some artesian event or some type of force that had carved its way in that rock and left an enormous hole there at the bottom of which there was still water that still flows even to this day and is the headwaters of the Jordan River. That spot, the spot at which not only Pan was greeted as a god, but Zeus as well as Baal and other gods were greeted because that spot became known as the gates of Hades, the gates of death, the gates of the underworld. It was a portal to all things pagan. As I said, it was sort of a bourbon street. Jesus used a variety of methods to teach. And obviously, one of the methods that he used to teach was to lead his disciples into specific geographical places that might engage them in their view of the world. You remember that last week in the sermon we talked about his having gone to Tyre and Sidon, which too was to the north side of the Sea of Galilee and just to the west of this area that he now is in. Jesus' methods for teaching, if you read through the scripture, are multiple though. It's not just this journey upon which he leads his disciples. But it is the way in which he spoke with such authority that not only did his disciples pay attention, but the Pharisees and scribes wondered to themselves, where did you get this authority? How is it that you were speaking in this way? And do you remember the many object lessons that Jesus would use, even from his first sermon on, where he talked about people as salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor, what good is it? And where Jesus spoke of lamps that when set on a table are not to be covered with a basket but are to be put there in order that all might see. And when Jesus talked about birds or trees or even children, it was always this object lesson, this opportunity that he used in order to teach very specifically his disciples and others that gathered near him. Do you remember how Jesus would repeat things as any teacher must do 
in order that the students finally gather it in. But Jesus, I wonder how many times he said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might and strength. And there's another one that's just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. I bet he repeated that a hundred times or more in order it might settle in. And don't you remember the stories that Jesus used for teaching? Especially those parables that were so unsettling to cause those who heard to feel uncomfortable at what the implication of the story might be. And do you remember the encounters that he had with people that he used to good advantage? Not that he was manipulating the situation, but that when someone came to him with their situation, however that might be, he did not miss the opportunity to teach others. He who is without sin cast the first stone. You remember the story behind that. And do you remember the hyperbole, the exaggerations of Jesus' language? If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Jesus was an expert in this Aramaic tradition. And humor, did any of you smile in hearing the story last week? Because I cannot help but think that Jesus perhaps was smiling. And the woman was smiling as well. Whom spoke to Jesus and said, yes, but even the puppies gather up the crumbs under the table. And Jesus was thinking, yes, yes, you got my joke. You got it at its very heart. And yet perhaps the most powerful way in which Jesus taught was to ask question after question after question after question. 400 years before Jesus was born into this world, Socrates, with his philosophy and his logic, had launched into the world the importance of asking questions. Questions that are good for students to hear. Questions that are good for teachers to hear. It is a way of teaching that permits not only the student to be the learner, but the teacher as well to be the learner. Do you remember that Jesus did a great deal of asking questions from his earliest days? In Luke chapter 2, the story is told of Jesus having not been in the presence of his parents, but his parents thinking that he was in the general vicinity of those that were traveling back home on the journey when they realized that he was not with them. 
And when they raced back to Jerusalem in order to find him and finally did, his response was, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Do you remember what they found him doing? It says in the second chapter of Luke, the 46th verse, after three days they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions it was a chief way in which Jesus was teaching have you been aware of some of the questions in the Bible that Jesus asked have they affected you at certain times in your life particularly do you remember these Can you, by worrying, add a single moment to your life? Do you remember when Jesus asked, Why do you notice the splinter in your brother's eye when you have such a large log in your own? Do you remember Jesus speaking about his cousin John and asking about the significance why did you go into the desert what did you go into the desert to see do you remember Jesus speaking to those that have come for healing and on several occasions asked the question do you believe I can do this Do you remember what an affront it must have been to his family when Jesus asked the question, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Do you remember Jesus asking, Why does this generation seek a sign? Do you remember Jesus asking, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And do you remember Jesus asking, Who is greater? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? All of these questions are meant to make us pause and think and to learn our prayer I hope together, collectively, is teach me, Jesus. Teach me, Jesus, your ways, as the song expresses. For you and I are too liable to simply function in the culture of public opinion. We certainly are in that place right now. The public opinion that is a part of the politics of an election always catches me a little off guard with all its polls and all the advertising that floods our news. Public opinion is important to us, though. And that's why we are sold it. 
And that's why we respond to it. It is about restating what we see and what we hear. We gather those that think like us and then listen to those alone so that we will know what to say if we are out in the public ourselves. And Jesus, into the midst of the gathering of public opinion, cast the questions, and to his disciples he asked, who do people say the Son of Man, or the human one, is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And... They began to move through those things that were representative of what others were saying. That some were saying that this is John the baptizer having returned from the dead. Some went so far as to say this is Elijah, the great prophet, who is to come heralding the presence of the Messiah. Some suggested that he would be perhaps Jeremiah, the one who weeps for the nation, who understands better than anybody what needs to be in the face of what isn't. Or could he be some other prophet? The disciples had all kinds of things going on in their mind. Words that they had heard others use to describe who Jesus was. But Jesus' significance does not ride on public opinion. And this is why he moves to another question. Asking, who do you say? That I am. Unless you think that this question is just put to Simon, that you is a plural pronoun in the Greek. And so in our vernacular, it's y'all. You got that, don't you? So let me read it again. Do you, who do you, who do y'all say? Who do y'all say that I am? The question struck like lightning. The air was electric. And silence hung there. For a very pregnant moment. In which no one wanted to venture out. And yet. Someone finally did. Simon ventured out as he usually would. You remember even inching his way out of that boat and onto the water. Lord, bid me come to you. As he ventured out toward Jesus. Our Christology 
not only defines Jesus, but it defines us. I don't know that Simon knew that. But when he spoke the words, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, son of the living God. His Christology was perfect. It cut to the very heart of who Jesus himself saw himself to be. For Simon, God was not static. God was not to just be defined by public opinion, by someone else's idea of who God might be. But Jesus was absolutely alive for him as he interacted and hung on every word that Jesus would speak. And Jesus' response to Simon was absolutely beautiful. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And some of you may be saying, I thought he was son of John. And it's an interesting little word study there that those are interchangeable. And it echoes back. Maybe in Jesus is saying this, to the story of Jonah. You remember that story, don't you? Isn't that pretty typical of the kind of individual that he might have seen Simon to be? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It doesn't come by other people, other opinions. But you've let it percolate within your own soul and steep within your own spirit to the point that you are able to speak this truth. And you are Petrus, Peter, which rhymes very closely with Petra, rock, massive rock, like the side of the hill that Jesus may have pointed to as he continued to share. And on this rock, this type of faith, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And he went on to tell Peter, the keys of the kingdom I give to you, and anything that you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Anything you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I tell you that what you do, and again we move to the inclusive you, lest you think 
that this is just about Peter or just about apostolic succession. Apostolic succession has a sad twist that somehow always leans into this patriarchal equation. And I'm here to tell you that this is a word for everybody in this room. That as we come, as we come before Christ, that our relationship with him to understand and to believe and to profess that he is the son of the living God. That there is power in that. That permits the church to be what it is called to be on earth as the entity that welcomes the kingdom of God in the way that it should be. So I have a question for you that you already know. And it's one that Jesus himself would state directly, looking into our eyes, if he were here, who do you say that I am? Unless that you think this is just rhetorical. Your homework is to really pay attention to this question today. Who do you say that Jesus is in your life? Do you realize that this not only defines who Christ is for you, but it defines who you are in the world, who we are in the world? And so I ask you, who is Christ for you? And in reflection, I think to myself, He is the one who suffers with those who suffer. He is the one who loves with such absolute purity of motive. He is the one who heals the afflicted. He is the one who does not surrender his love in the presence of evil, even the worst of evil in this world. He is the one who feeds the hungry and who gives living water to the thirsty. He is the one who rescues us from all those things that plague us. He is the one who rescues us from the grave. And so what is that question again? Can you remember it? Can you repeat it? Repeat this after me. <laughs> 
Who do you say that I am? Now you say it. This is, this is class time, right? Teach me, Jesus, your ways. Let's say it again together. Who do you say I am? Give that some thought.